You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Mark Robinson. Mark is a former English cricketer who played for three different counties, Northamptonshire, Yorkshire and Sussex. He served as the coach of Sussex from 2005 to 2015, leading them to two county championships. During this time, he also coached English youth teams. In 2015, he became the coach of the English women's team, famously leading them to their World Cup victory in 2017 and then to the final of the World T20 Championship in 2018. He was awarded an OBE in the Queen's 2018 New Year Honours list and is presently coaching Warwickshire County Cricket Club in the UK National League. Mark is a calm, emotionally intelligent coach who sees his role as the team leader being one where, in his words, he helps everyone feel included, safe and gain a sense of enjoyment. He believes that great coaches give you their time and unconditional love. And he talks about this in the context of the journey his team went on to win the Women's Cricket World Cup in 2017. Mark is also humble and self-effacing in the way that many of the great coaches often are. And some of the things that stayed with me after the interview were how he stresses the importance of forgiving athletes and being willing to understand what is driving the poor or disruptive behaviour you are seeing 
how one of his most important lessons was learning not to deny athletes their negativity by trying to rationalise it, and instead working with their reality to talk about how they are going to improve, and how he tries to normalise anxiety by talking about emotions in terms of opposites. In his words, you can't be brave unless you're scared, you can't be happy unless you know what sadness is, and you can't know real success if you don't know what failure is. This was a wonderful conversation, and I hope you enjoyed as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Mark Robinson, good morning and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Yes, morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're very excited to talk to you. I do enjoy talking about cricket, especially this time of year. But I guess before we get into the interview, can I just ask you something really simple? Where are you in the world today and what have you been up to so far? Well, I'm in East Preston, which is in Sussex, May Worthing, a lovely part of the world, 10 minutes walk to the sea. And I've, I've done a dog walk, get the dog around the block a couple of times, have a wiener poo, and now I'm just settling, getting ready for the day. Well, we're very happy that you could take some time off from walking the dog to talk a little bit of cricket. And we're going to get into all things World Cup and how you led the team to victory. And of course, your experience in the county championship as well. But if I could, I'd like to start by just talking about some of the great coaches that you've had experience with. There's many. The two names that I could find was, of course, Alan Smith and Andy Flower. But I wanted to ask you more broadly, what is it you think the great coaches do differently from the ones who aren't so great? I think they take an interest in you as a person, I guess. And they're there for you. It's a bit like being a parent, isn't it? It's that unconditional degree, it's that unconditional love. And they're there for you. And they put time, they give you time. And time's the best gift you can give anybody, isn't it? I think that's what the best coaches do, they give you time. They forgive you. I think this is really important. Players don't really forgive coaches very much, but coaches and parents are having to forgive all the time their children, aren't they? So you think there's a very strong correlation with being a parent and being a great coach? Um, massively, yeah, all the time. Like watching players sometimes you, when they're developing, you try to watch them how close they go to the fire before you have to step in. It's the same, the same thing. You try to allow your children to become more independent. And the, the hardest age to coach is, is that that stage when a player wants to be independent but he isn't quite able to be independent and you're having to let them have their wings to degree but you know it's going to to degree have some tears now as well it's like our teenagers isn't it our teenage kids when you when they're going that through one minute they want to be treated like an adult and the next minute they want the, you know, everything done the room tidied up for them and etc isn't it so and it's, players are no different you're trying to help them along that journey so I guess being a parent is a good part of an apprenticeship for any aspiring coach. It's not, it's, you don't have to be, but I think there's just correlation, there's correlation isn't there? Um, players go through stages, I think. Players go, what I'd say, go through a wanker stage where and it's a natural progression. So we're generally at the beginning, they'll, they're very moldable, want to please. And then they'll go through a stage where what who's watching me? Are the selectors watching me? How close am I to playing for England? Am I going to keep in the team? How much money is he getting? How much money am I getting? And then they come out the other end and they become, that's the, that's actually the, the lovely end when they are almost reborn again and they've got young hearts but wise heads. And it's almost these three stages I think you, you, you have as a player. I mean, we've all done it the same where we're, we get wrapped up in the wrong things and then it's usually when they come out the other side, they're, 
rather played for England enough that they're not bothered or they've done their international stuff and they're just not trying to prove to anybody else but they're just trying to score runs, take wickets, get the job done. Not what it's looked like, which obviously it isn't what it looks like ever, but you can't cheat that that cycle. You're trying to help them through it, but they'll go through it. You had a great apprenticeship for coaching. You played for Northamptonshire, Yorkshire and Sussex before you became a coach. What did you learn about coaching as a player? Or rather, I'd rephrase it, what did you not learn <laughs> as a player about coaching that surprised you so much when you did become a coach? I learned about the envi- how, the, how important the environment is, and this is reflective. So my experience as a young player at Yorkshire wasn't great. The environment wasn't very good. came from Hull, which is 120 miles round trip from Leeds, and we'd have to do that journey to Leeds. No appreciation from a mum and dad. 14 to 18-year-old on that four-year cycle going once, twice a week through the winter to Leeds. 120-mile round trip. No appreciation what sacrifice mum and dad would have been doing to get me there, doing their work cycles and everything. And then hating it because it was austere, not friendly, not welcoming, helped the odd one out. So I learned how important an environment is how important the role of the coach is to to make everybody feel included, feel safe, have a sense of enjoyment. So that that really stuck with me. As a player, I've got I've got bad eyes. So my eyes don't work together. They work they're both strong eyes, but they don't work together. They work independently. I've got no 3D vision. So picking up length when you, when your eyes don't work together is a battle. So Definitely had my challenges in the under high catches, and obviously from a batting point of view. But I, from a but it taught me you've got to find a way. So I think as a coach, it's helped me be able to empathise. I know what it's like to shit yourself. I know what it's like to, to stand on the boundary thinking, please don't come to me. I know what it's like to walk out sometimes feeling ill prepared or inadequate. But played for I don't know, 15, 17 years, and I found a way. Otherwise, you don't, you, you, you fall off, you fall away, you, you know, you get released and you got, you're on the scrap heap. So I, I think I've got a, a good balance through my own experience of being able to empathise with the human side of it, but equally try and help players to come to terms with it and have to, as I say, to find a way, accept whatever your inefficiencies are and how we can find out what we're going to do then to overcome them, how we're going to make this work. It's interesting you talk about empathy because when it comes to coaching, I've read that you've said it's about understanding what's holding the athlete back, giving them confidence and the foundations to play with freedom. Does that sum up your coaching philosophy? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. Actually, I was really, I mean, I don't know where you got where I've said that, but I actually used that last week with something. And I think it is, yeah. I, I think it's like poor behavior, isn't it? Poor behavior is happening for a reason. What's driving it? What's what's the trigger? What's the, what's behind that? And I think sometimes we can go to the condemning bit too too quickly, as opposed to trying to take the extra time to tell what's causing somebody to always be late or whatever it is, moody, rude, late waiter, whatever. What's what's driving it? And if you try and get underneath it, and from a playing point of view, it's the same, isn't it? We're trying to give the player the confidence to go out and play and, exp- and, and feel safe enough to make mistakes. And I suppose that's what it is in practice. You're going to make, allow them to make mistakes and also accept mistakes in the game. That's what I said at the beginning. You, as a coach, you've got to forgive. You've got to forgive your players and make sure they feel forgiven and feel safe. You've got to understand there is a consequence. 
we live in a there's a performance reality. So our currency is as a cricketer anyway is wickets, runs and wins. That's our currency. That ends is our living. So we can't ever escape from that. But if that consumes us, we'll never be able to achieve. And we have to say on that road to greatness and taking our all our wickets, we've got to prepare to take some risk and make some mistakes on the way. This listening to you, it's it's a very philosophical approach. And I'm wondering is there an instance where you've taken a team or even an individual and you've managed to lift their confidence to the extent where you've seen performance improvement follow? Oh, yeah, 100%, definitely. Sammy Beaumont would be one. When I joined the girls, she was in the out group as a person and in the out group as a player. She's arguably as good as any ODI batsman now in the world. At least stat-wise would say that in the last four years, what she's done, that would be one. But but it, it will never be about me or the coach. It, it's about you trying to help mould an environment and use your resources, your other staff to try and give confidence and belief. I think I, I, I learned something really, really important on those of the girls as well. I've got a great line, don't deny them their negativity, which, we, we, which would be the opposite where sometimes I would naturally look. And that taught me a lot. Actually, sometimes by being empathetic. So my natural approach would be, it wasn't that bad. You didn't bowl that badly. You've got two wickets. You might have been more expensive one, but it wasn't that too bad. I'd be on that positive approach. Well, I learned actually that's not always helpful, especially to some personality traits. And actually, by denying them their negativity, you were causing more problems. What, what I needed to be doing there was not arguing against their reality. Okay, so you felt that what we're going to do to make it better the next day and move them on that way, as opposed to almost having this argument about how bad it was. So that taught me a lot. And that's not an approach you need to do with every player. And that's where you've got to know your players. And they say, so something like Tammy, it, it wasn't, that wouldn't have been the right approach. This other player in question, I had to not deny her negativity, allow her, that was her perception. I wasn't going to change it. The more I would stick on trying to change it, the worse I would make it. That was a really important lesson that I learned. How did you learn that lesson? I got told a great story from one of the England men's sports psychs about an England player. And then we we were mass- we were lucky enough with the girls to be involved with some re- research from Bangor University. And that's sort of where I, I learned a little bit around one of the players. I think all good coaches are trying to find out and, and understand their players the best you can, which goes back to that line. You're trying to understand what makes them tick, what they're block, what's block, what's blocking their ability to play with the freedom and the confidence that you want them to play, isn't it? And that's what you're trying to find out about their lives, really. I mean, that's I've done mentoring, a lot of mentoring, a bit of leadership in the last year, meaning cricket, but other some other sports, bit of business, and everybody's got a story to tell. And it's actually fascinating when you sit down and start listening to somebody's story. You can actually see how their values are shaped and how their leadership is shaped in the same way mine will talk about my experience at Yorkshire as a kid that shaped me as a coach my experiences with my eyes and that feeling of being inadequate and being in environments that ridiculed not ridiculed my eyes but my men's environments at the worst can be really cutting and not helpful you know the banter can be harsh you really are sinking and swimming and in some ways, yes, if you come through it, you're toughened up. But it shouldn't be like that. Again, that how I want to shape an environment. It's got to be challenging, but it's got to be supportive. You've coached elite levels in men and women's cricket. 
What's the difference between the way the teams support each other? So gen- I'm just going to speak generalizations. Female teams generally, the web of companionship or togetherness is more important. And when it's right, it's massively powerful. When it's not quite right, it's massively destructive, which probably isn't as prevalent in the male teams. And I am speaking generalization if anybody shoots me there. You'll get, you hear the old middle sex team of the dominant team under Mike, under Mike Gatton, et cetera, saying you weren't the best mates. You don't need to be the best mates to, to be a good team. In the female team, it's more important that everybody gets what's on. There'll be more problems, potential problems. That's a big difference. You have to understand as a coach the compatibility of the teams and home. You've coached adult teams, male and female, but you've also coached the youth teams, the English Lions. And there was a couple of handy players actually in the squads that you, you coached, Joss Butler, Joe Root, Ben Stokes, and that's just, just the tip of the iceberg. What was the focus of your development work with those players when they were in their late teens? That's England in the 19s, yeah. I did the England in the 19s to World Cup. We had a, what ended up being a high-powerful team. But at the time, you see, like, Joe Root was in that team, but he wasn't quite ready at that point for ODI cricket, which is what the World Cup was. So you've got a player that I can tell he's going to be very, very good. You never tell how good. But he was just a bit, at that point, wasn't strong in that sense. Physically strong, wasn't quite ready. And then Butler and Stokes stood out in terms of how they struck the ball. But you just, look, as a coach, you, you, you say you're a facilitator, you're just part of, especially when you do a team like the England and Nine teams, the same when I did the, the Lions teams, which is the, the, you know, the A team to the, the from England team. You are there to help them through a, a period. So that under 19 it was about their preparation for it. And then you were running the team itself in New Zealand and you're trying to help them obviously you want them to win but you're trying to from my point of view I'm trying to teach them the game a little bit you kind of teach them when you can have a drink when you can't have a drink all those type of things that good senior players do and that's in that sense and my approach that on the 19 I probably wouldn't be allowed to do some of the things that did then nowadays it's because of scrutiny or what was deemed right or wrong as I say i I I remember the first time they were in the, we got to New Zealand and I knew they were out as a team. So I went to find them. I didn't find them to go to find them to bother them because I knew they were out. And we had a couple of days readjustment because obviously the time difference and everything, couldn't do anything physical training. So I went to find them in the system and found them in the pub. I bought them all a drink. So I wanted them to see me as Robbo as well as the coach. And, and what I didn't want, I didn't want them doing things behind my back. I felt I could have better control if, the right, if that's the right word, if I knew what was happening. And then I could guide them, send people home, etc. And then the next day we had a meeting actually at three in the afternoon. And we did it because I was there. We went all, you know, close and time, half ten, and everybody went home. And one player slept in. He was a better lad gone back to sleep. I was able to get hold of him and say, look, you let me down because, you know, if the manager found out I was with you buying you a drink, I'm in trouble. Right, and you've let me down now. You're letting everybody down. We can't do, I can't treat you like adults if you're not going to do these things. So you're able to play the guilt card a little bit. Just trying to get trust. Oh, well, what you're trying to do is, you know, the young men, you're trying to get trust that you were there for them. We beat India, which is the first time in the 19th that ever beaten India. Powerhouses did. I knew it was student night that night. So obviously the players are high. And I know it's student night in town. And I know that all plans are gone. And I remember saying in the dressing room, 
Look, I'm not asking anything of you. I'm asking not to go tonight. He's playing three days' time. I know how long it takes to recover from a night out, proper night out, and it won't be in time. I'm going to ask you as your coach. And then we got beaten in the semi-finals, I think, and I arranged a night out for them. You're trying to say so you're trying to teach them how to be a team, when to hold back, when to when to go. I you don't think I've been allowed to arrange night outs for them anymore. It's a shame. <laughs> you took over the English women's team in 2015, and in 2017, they famously go on to win the World Cup final. What were some of the first things you did when you took over the team that set up that result? I think you go in any job, you set, you've got to have a vision and you've got to hopefully that's going to be a shared vision. So I remember we met, the first time we met as a squad properly, when I got all the players together, we were in South Africa. So I've done a month in the job already, but the best six girls were in the women's big bash. I just put it on the big whiteboard from Potchinston, which is where we were in South Africa. I put from Potchinston to, to Lords. Just put the dates up. So we start in here, January 2016, Potchinstone, and Lords, July, whatever the date was, where we're going to finish. And that's the journey. And everything we do from then is going to be to that goal. And I, a lot of my language would be things like, when we are playing Australia in the final at Lords, this is why. And the staff would join in. You know, they'd put on the, the SMC, the strength of additional coach, would put things like sweat for the batch. Everything was almost a language around. So that was one of the first things you did. And then I suppose you're trying to tell a squad or a team or a group of players how you're going to get there. And so that was my thing, how we're going to get there by being braver, by being more exciting, we're going to break records. I put all the records of women's world cricket in a team room. And I asked the girls, I want you to visualise your names. That's the most best strike rate and teacher on it. I want your names there. That's in the next that cycle of four years. Your names are going to be up there. So you're trying to excite them how to play and where we're going to go. I think the other thing I asked them to do was the old, the old Darwin quote about it's not the fittest or the strongest that survive. It's, it's the one, you know, the people who, who can evolve whatever the right quote is. I just asked them that for them to be brave enough to be prepared to evolve. So that's what we did that and I set that out. But it wasn't obviously like most things, one quite plain, uh, plain sailing because... We had to make a few changes. We had to change the captaincy and let a couple of senior players go to get a younger team that was probably more likely to fulfill that vision. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, speaking of um, captains, you were very effusive in your praise for Heather Knight. And in cricket, the role of the captain is, it's quite unusual because they're the ones 
making the decisions during the game. Your your role as the coach is, is somewhat limited. What advice do you have for other coaches on picking a captain? I mean, I've lucky. I've worked with lots of different captains. Chris Adams, magnificent captain at Sussex. Michael Yard is brilliant. And sometimes you're only as good as your resources, aren't you? Same as a coach. You're only as good as what resources you've got to manage. But captains comes in all different shapes and sizes. I think from a coach point of view, you have, you have to blend to the personality of the captain a little bit. So Chris Adams was a dominant alpha male, big, brilliant speaker, you know, Churchillian speeches, led by example on the pitch. So you, he doesn't need me speaking all the time in the dressing either. He wanted to control the dressing room in that sense. So I had the, so my domain was a training ground. You know, I all did all the training, the organized and everything else, a bit more strategic. Then you go Michael Yardy, who was less comfortable speaking in the dressing room. He still ran the team as such, but he's less comfortable with the speaking. So I speak more. You go, I went on a Lions tour, one of my first England Lions tour, when I've got Chris Wokes as captain. And you're trying to empower Chris Wokes to be the captain. You're trying to give him opportunities to be. I'm trying to create opportunities and saying to him, I'd like you to do this, trying to help him feel like it's his team. And Heather... Charlotte Edwards was an out, she's an awesome leader in her own right, but she just ran a race. Her legs had gone, unfortunately. And it was just, we needed a, a younger captain to, to sort of be able to lead in, a, in different ways to what Charlotte could. So there's not no indictment on Charlotte. The best thing I could call it, the best, couple of best things that Heather did was, you know, she had a reputation for to being a, about a couple of things and she changed. She just wanted to be the best human being she possibly could, the best leader she could. She wasn't like us all, all fallible or but sometimes fail, but it was just this wanting to be just the best you could in, in every way. Never mind as a player, but just as a person, the best lead. I remember what going to her once. And we wanted to I said there's a couple of young young we've got four, know, four young players, four Academy girls with us. I said, yeah, one's a bit scared of you. So she went and took all four of them out for tape, bought them all, paid for them and everything. And she just want didn't want to be that person who somebody was scared of. And she's incredibly comfortable in her own skin. Leadership. I don't know what you look. We say what you look for. I suppose you're looking for. I guess I'd look for somebody who is comfortable enough in their own skin, which I think that is important. So then they've got strong enough to have power in their own, their own conviction, their own, you know, their own convictions as such. I think that would be something I would look for. But there is no one fit all. They don't have to be Churchillian, and they don't equally have to be quiet and uh, observant. There is no one way. Mike, I wanted to ask you about mental skills actually because one of the things that you did was you brought mental skills training into the team and the focus was around how to handle handle anxiety and I wondered whether there were any top tips that you could share for other people who may or may not even be in sporting teams. Well I think my, my way of full stop is to try and normalize everything so a lot of the feelings that we have it's, it's normal to feel but there's a lot better now, isn't it? Day, year by year, day by day, there's more people talking about things. There's more encouragement to talk, especially most of my career in professional sport. That wasn't the case. You're meant to be strong and not show weakness. So I would generally try and normalize everything. So I, I'd always say things like, you can't be brave unless you're not scared. You, you can't be brave if you're not anxious because it, it just doesn't work. The work opposite, you know, you can't be happy unless you know what sadness is. You can't, you don't know real what real success is if you don't know what failure is. And you have to understand emotions okay. 
and I'll try and normalise in that sense. I was lucky enough to work with a couple of clinical psychs a tiny bit. And I'm probably building my world up a little bit there, but with a couple of players who had a bit of clinical psych support, I would go to meetings with and I'd get educated a little bit on that. And so you start to understand how to try and make an environment safer, how best to work with a player. But I'd be with somebody like Sarah Taylor and what she would tell me, I think I'd be sat, and it was the same when I was with Michael Yardy. We both went to a few tough times. I think, like, I feel like that. But the difference is when what happened with Sarah, it started to control her life. Her anxiety started to control our life and stopped doing things, stopped going on public transport, stopped wanting to be around people. But that, not that anxiety that you get around, I've got to go out and speak in front of the public. It's normal. And you, there, there are things you can then try and do to try and control it. But I think first of all, you've got to accept you're going to feel uncomfortable. You're going to feel like shit. That's the first thing. You almost have this acceptance. This is not, and it will, but it will pass. I feel like this now, but it won't, I won't feel like this in 20 minutes, half an hour. I won't feel like this when it's gone. I'll actually feel really good. Trying to remember that bit. And then there's lots of good tips to try and help cope in the moment, isn't it? From, from breathing and everything else. But as I said, we just, I just tried to create a normalize it and get it discussed and get it present. And it was a little bit around Sarah because when I was starting to, so work with Sarah and she, about, especially about her coming back in. You know, we did some work with the whole group about anxiety. There's different types you get, but there's also performance anxiety. Sarah's was actually as much of anything. It was social anxiety. I was fascinated. You talk about discussion, and I think it's a bit of a theme, actually. Having these open discussions with the team, I could find numerous examples of it in the, in the, the research I did to talk to you today. But there was one discussion that you facilitated that I thought was really fascinating, particularly when it comes to female sport. It was the when you invited the hockey player, Alex Danson, in to come and talk to the team about managing pressure and hormonal impacts. And I'm wondering if there was some parts of that speech that you could share with other people who are wondering how to manage that balance as well. Alex came in to talk to the girls. Well, there was lots of different reasons why that. So we went to Lords. The, the final was at Lords. The girls never ever played Lords. You know, it's mill bastion place, never get a chance. So we, I, what I didn't want us to do was to get to Lords and the girls be, never mind, it's a final, but they're also overawed by the place. So we, I, I took them to Lords twice in the build-up. And we didn't, we obviously, this before we even got to the final, even before the World Cup started. And the first time we did a tour around Lords, like history, it's fascinating, it's an awesome place. And in the dining room, sat, and we sat in the dressing room and, Normal stuff, you're trying to visualize. I mean, you're trying to get them to visualize, you know, all the beers in our hands singing the team song and everything. And a part of that was Alex was to come in to talk about how the, the England hockey team had handled that pressure of a home Olympics and everything that they did. And it was that would have just been one part of the subject um, that they would have just they would have discussed. It was everything from social, you know, how they were going to handle social media to everything. And that wasn't me. That was just a facilitator. She was, she spoke good, didn't they? And we listened. And then we had a team discussion, or the girls would have a team discussion around what we picked up and everything. And a lot of those, a lot, you're just trying to, again, with everything from hormonal to anything, you're just trying to increase awareness in the individuals about what they're experiencing so they can best put things in, in place to be able to do it better or to, to cope. We did, we did things like, you do your what ifs. What if 
you, we, we did things, oh, I'm trying to get my words right. So we, we did things like, you're going to shit yourself. You're walking out and you will be shitting yourself. Your heart will be going, what are you going to do? Are you going to acknowledge the crowd, look at the crowd and take it all in? Feeling your chest up, are you going to go out and you're just going to almost put your head down, ignore everything, decompartmentalize, tap at the crease, talk to the partner, and pretend it's all not there. Both are okay, but what are you going to do? How are you going to slow that heart down? Because it will be ticking. And we almost practiced in advance of it. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to do your what is it? It, it, it will always go up and well. How are you going to try and get some sleep tonight? What, what, you, what are you going to try and do to try and get some sleep? Because you, it will be hard. Mark, you've said, I'm at my best when I'm fighting for something. But as a coach, you often have to choose your battles. When is it important for you as a coach to stand back? I think as a coach, sometimes you go, feel irrelevant. And it's like, I don't even need to be here. And other times as a coach, you think, I haven't got enough fingers to put in the dams. So you go from feeling the most stressed and overworked person trying to, as I say, Get you, help navigate through a crisis to other times just watching and you think it's fine. I mean, I've been lucky to say Michael Yardy was, and I speak to Michael Yardy a lot. He's, he'll be a fantastic head coach one day, the moment he's a coach at Ken. I speak to him all the time, but he was brilliant. So when all best, all the best teams have a strong shot for, it's captain and coach and then they've got these senior players who run, run the dressing room properly. And that's when you, you generally, ideally, you're standing back and there's a problem, the team sorts it out. And that's when a team works really, really well. Didn't quite get the England women team to that point due to lack of experience more than anything. They didn't have those, what I would call, true senior players. But from what I mean, why I, I fight for cause. So with the, with the girls, Australia, the powerhouse, we had 120 professionals. We had 17, it wasn't even a race. But my cause was them because there was I just saw this innocence and the wets because because of they were new to professionals and the wet spoiled by money. There was no cynic, there wasn't that cynical side that you can sometimes get in male sports. I hadn't got to the wanker bit yet, I guess. They just were purely playing for the love. It was pure. And their attachment to their parents and again my own experience of looking back to what my mum and dad had to sacrifice to get me through. And, I've, and they're closest to their parents because if it weren't for their parents, there would have no, there was no chance because it was limited. A lot of the girls would have had to go from one side of the country to the other side of the country just to play to get an opportunity, which, you know, doesn't happen in their mills. So I saw all this. and my, So my cause became their cause to get visibility, to get... Uh, we went The first time we went to a T20 World Cup, we went with the men. So it was a joint World It was a World Cup was in India women and the men, both at the same time, same venues, et cetera. So it'd be a male game and a female game on the same day, et cetera. We got on the same, we got on the plane with the men. The men went left to business class and we went right to economy. And you're thinking that's not, that'd be quite right, that type of thing. So you, my cause would be to fight that really, those type of things and use my influence as a reasonably high profile male coach to fight their cause when I could, because I, I had a voice. And sometimes I wouldn't stand back when I should do. I would maybe push too hard to the powers that be. But as I say, I feel best when I'm... Sussex, I love my club. We were the underdogs. I love the fact I could... But the cause I would create is we are the underdogs taking on the big boys. Okay, I remember we'll going to an agent once and saying, just have a look at the stands, please. It's not the Oval. It's not Lord. It's it's Hove. We have no stands. It only holds 4,000. I love the fact we could say we were the 
we're the underdogs, but we don't care. We punch and we punch. That was my cause to take on the big boys to show it's not about money. We can do it in a different way without money and power. That was a call. So I think it's about creating, finding a cause and creating a cause for myself and for the team and get it behind and unite the team behind. Mark, there's a fabulous quote from you where you say, and actually I wouldn't mind reading it to you. I learnt loads off the players. It's made me a better coach and has made me see the world differently. It broadened me, expanded me and extended me. And I'm wondering if it's not too personal, if I could ask you, what were some of the learnings that led you to say this quote? Having been in the male chauvinist world for 35 years, and then I was in this, it was a more innocent world where the city wasn't spoiled by money. They were professionals, but it was not the cynical side. So it made me fall in love with the game again. I was never out of love with the game. It really made me fall in love again, properly, because it was played for what it was. And I saw true sacrifice. I remember, so I'd go to Sports Personality of the Year, the BBC Sports Personality of the Year with the men. And I'd hear female athletes speak about being role models. And it just went over my head, really. And, but I'd go with the girls. When I went with the girls, I found it really emotional because I know how, I've seen our girls, how important it, they felt it was to be role models. How important to inspire girls to see sport as a chance as a future, as a way, which you know, which was always previously a male way, a male world. And when I was, as a, obviously as a bloke, as a young person coming, young player, I think there was role models all around us. Everywhere there was male role models, wasn't there? It was a sport was male dominated. Even pop groups, everything was generally male dominated. So we never had to worry in the same way about being a role model, not like the girls did. So. That made that changed me. I remember going to International Women's Day and hearing, hearing some of the stories of what females have had to go through to get opportunity and the positions in business that they're in. I saw inequality where I'd never seen it before. And, and as I say, somebody like Heather watching her desire to be just a sort of this, just the best person she possibly could and what she would do to try and do that. Charlotte Edwards, who, you know, to a degree, I ended her career and her then wanting to work with me and forgive me and things like that. And that's, that was lovely. So we won the final up north and we're walking around. And so I got emotional for two reasons. One, because I thought about my parents and they're no longer with me and how proud they would be that day. And I saw a commentator, a male commentator crying, a journalist crying, and it was one of the ex-players. And I was thinking, that's a, you know, they, they were writing about the game or commentating about the game when nobody listened, when nobody wanted to, to read the articles. And, you know, the ex-player, you know, she played an A when nobody came to watch. And here we are at Wars, 25,000, full house, you know, a pivotal most day for women's sport. And watching them, so it made me just think about how humble it was. Because we were not just celebrating, obviously, the day itself with, 25,000, it's, it's a launch pad for women's sport. And it's just going from strength to strength. It's actually almost um, a reference to the past and all the sacrifice and all the other people have gone before me. And if it wasn't for being involved with that in the women's team, I would you know, have kept some of Sussex and gone to another county. I wouldn't have experienced half of what I did. Sexuality, you know, some of the girls, the gays, some are straight. Again, just listen to the stories, what it, what it means. Learned a lot about transgender to everything. 
you saw the world differently because you see, you see you, you, your eyes are open, you've been educated to some of that inequality. Mark, you've said that legacies are a selfish thing, that you don't want a legacy, you just want to do the best you can for the team and the people. But if I spun that around and I said, what if we asked some of the teams and the people in those teams what your impact on them would be, how do you think they would describe, or rather, how would you like them to describe the legacy you've left? I hope they'd say when I went through a bad time, he was there. He popped up. I've heard him from a while, but he popped up and had a bad time. And he supported me as a person. I'd hope they'd say that as much as anything. I'd like them to, hopefully. And I think sometimes you don't know what somebody does for you until a bit further down the line. Because you, you just live in, aren't you? And then after the event, or sort of further down the line, you appreciate, like mine said about my mum and dad, I didn't really appreciate that I wasn't in the right place to listen. Sport goes through cycles, though, doesn't it, as well? And teams go through cycles. So, you know, the win, the lose. Manchester United, triumphant. Never, you'd never envisage them going four or five years without winning. Liverpool, my age group. So it's just the same. And teams go through cycles, and that's what I say. It's... There's a lot of luck in sport. You just happen to be there the right place when a team's really successful. Michael Yardy, I always go back to him. I, Chris Adams quite won more trophies than his Sussex captain, but was he a better captain than Yardy? He had Mushtaq. Yardy didn't have Mushtaq. Well, it's very hard to know. And that's what I say about legacies. You're just doing the best job. And it's, I think it's how people remember you is more important than trophies won or anything else like that. Mark Robinson, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. It's a... Uh a real masterclass in people management and leadership. And I thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Jim here. You've been listening to our discussion with Mark Robinson. I especially like Mark's calm, understated style, and I can imagine it being a great benefit when the pressure really mounts. The key highlights for me were that one of the hardest parts of being a coach is finding a way to work with an athlete who wants to be independent but isn't quite ready for that yet. How, as a coach, sometimes you feel in the center of helping to handle a crisis and at other times totally irrelevant and of wanting to leave a legacy of someone who helped athletes as people and remained in their life to help when times are bad. I hope you enjoyed this as much as Paul and I did. Coming up next on the Great Coaches Podcast, we'll be speaking to Felicia Leggett-Jack. And that's very important for young people because there's so much doubt in young women that if you share with them that they are the best ever, I see them, you're the matter, they fly and they flourish. And so that's what I value the most is the fact that I can help people find and feel their value even on days I feel broken. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Mm -hmm.